Why don't you guys take out your Bibles, open up to the book of Psalms, and we are in Psalm 40. And while you guys are turning to Psalm 40, why don't you uh, join with me as we ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. Heavenly Father, we come before you. And Lord, we open up your word and we ask you to speak to us, Lord. Father, that we would know that your word is what we need for our very souls, for our very lives. It's, it's what uplifts us. It what enables us. Your word has the strength and the power to transform and to change and to renew because you gave your word that power. And Lord, you promised us that when your word goes out, it never returns back void. So we hold on to that promise, Lord. And we ask for all the blessings and, and, and everything that you have for us in the name of Jesus. Amen. This is Psalm 40. I've titled it Life in the Pits. Life in the Pits because, um, right? We live in a fallen world. So a year ago in May, my family and I, we went on a trip to Freeport, um, Surfside. Uh, Surfside Beach. It's just outside of Galveston. What was it? Like an 11-hour drive, I think it was. 15 because we had a uh, spark, a uh, misfire in cylinder two of our engine, and we drove for 700 miles that way. It was devastating. Don't believe Firestone when they tell you you can continue to drive on it and nothing will happen. We were totally prepared to wait it out and let them fix it, but they were like, no, no, you'll be fine. Anyway, that's another story. So we made it all the way out there. And the area that we were at is literally on the beach. Um, the houses were on stilts to accommodate the occasional floods and chaos that comes from the hurricanes that come up through the, the Gulf. And um, one of the days that we were there, and it's been a couple of days where it had just been raining, like a light rain, but it's, it's just a constant rain all day long, all night long just raining. And so we go to the other side of where we're at, because we're kind of like in this uh, cove, this bay area. And we go to the other side of it because we hear that there's good crabbing there. They have these blue crabs that were there, easy to catch, easy to get. And um, as we're going over to go crabbing, we didn't even make it to crabbing because as we're driving into the area that we want to go to, um, I'm riding with my brother-in-law. We're in a uh, Nissan 12 passenger van. Uh, so it's just, giant box on wheels, heavy. We had my three kids and their five kids. And so, uh, and, and I think my wife was with us. No, she wasn't. She met us there later. Because what ended up happening is as we're going in, there's a dry side and there's a side that just has like this little puddle, like a little puddle, looked like nothing. Like, well, we'll just go this way. And so we went to the little puddle, but it wasn't a little puddle. It was just this wet mud. And it wasn't just a slick surface. Like it wasn't mud that you could stand on. Like as soon as you got in it, it you sunk into it. it. It made this sucking sound as you tried to walk through it. It stole my brother-in-law's sandals. Um, it just a slurping sound as you walked through it. And the van was stuck all the way up to the axle in mud. And this van one tire turns. And so I watched as my brother-in-law worked furiously. I didn't just stand there the whole time, but I watched for a little bit to see what he was doing. He was working furiously. He, he was grabbing whatever he could. He was trying to dig out the tire. 
He was trying to dig it out, but it was hard. Every time he moved a slop of mud, it just fills up with water. It was, it was just saturated with water. And so I was just thinking, man, we, we were trying everything. We found these rotted pieces of wood and we're trying to stick it under there because if we could just get some solid ground under that tire, we could get free. If we could just have something solid to stand on, we would do much better because there was one time my brother-in-law, he's like digging and he's furious, working and whatnot. And he just slips and falls covered in, just covered in muck. And it was at that point he was like kind of losing it. So that's when I called my wife and I said, hey, we need help. <laughs> We've tried for a while now. We tried to hide the fact that we got stuck, but we need help. And so uh, it reminds me of what I read, the Greek philosopher Archimedes. He says, give me a place to stand and I will move the world. That's how important it is to have a solid place to stand. You need a solid place to stand to get out of the mud, to get out of the mire. Without a solid place to stand, without footing, you're going to sink and you're going to sink in frustration. If you have solid ground though, you can be drawn out. You see, we had another car that came up and hooked up a tow cable and they were on solid ground and they were four wheel drive and they just had awesome tow power and they were able to pull us out, but they were on solid ground. Lacking that though, your life is going to sink in impatience and you're going to get soiled in frustration. Now there's an old, and I mean old rock group. Their name is U2 and they wrote a song that's very closely based on the words of Psalm 40. Now, I'm going to tell you right off the bat, I'm not a fan of you 2 But the lyrics of their song go like this. It says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit, out of the miry clay. I will sing, sing a new song. I will sing, sing a new song. How long to sing this song? How long to sing this song? How long, how long, how long, how long to sing this song? Very creative writing. He set my feet upon a rock and made my footsteps firm. Many will see, many will see and hear. I will sing, sing a new song. I will sing, sing a new song. I will sing, sing a new song. How long to sing this song? How long to sing this song? How long, how long, how long, how long to sing this song? Now, that final question in the song, how long to sing the song, that brings me up with three thoughts as I consider this passage before us. How long to sing this song? The first thought is that our song should be one of praise for what God has done for us. So that many will see and hear the good news of the gospel and be saved from this life as it is without God. Our new song should also reflect on what God is doing presently. And last, our song should also lead us to plea for fresh deliverance. Did you know that when you ask God to save you, like he wasn't done saving you, you don't have to be like, well, I already asked him once. Like, is he really going to do it again? He totally will. This is the pattern that we see before us that David takes as he's writing this psalm. Life is always changing. The only constant in life is that life changes in moments 
And it's very quick that you go from being on dry, solid ground to slipping and sliding in the mud. Getting stuck in the muck and the mire. And the psalm includes two parts, okay? The psalm divides up into two parts. There's a thanksgiving part, and that's verses 1 through 10. And then verses 11 through 17, that's the petition. That's the new petition. And both have to be a part of the song that we sing. Or we may just end up singing the blues. You ever sang the blues? There's no resolution in that song. It's just, here's my problem. Here's my problem. And that's it. There's nothing that comes out of it. So as we sing our song, we we remember that there's a previous experience of deliverance. That's what David writes about in verses 1 through 10. So he says in verse 1, I wait patiently for the Lord and he turned to me and he heard me cry, my cry for help. He brought me up from a desolate pit out of the muddy clay, set my feet on a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and they will trust in the Lord. How happy is anyone who has put his trust in the Lord and has not turned to the proud or to those who run after lies. Lord, my God, you have done many things. Your wondrous works and your plans for us. None can compare with you. If I were to report and speak of them, they are more than can be told. I proclaim righteousness in the great assembly. See, I do not keep my mouth closed as you know, Lord. I do not hide. I did not hide your righteousness in my heart. I spoke about your faithfulness and salvation. I did not conceal your constant love and truth from the great assembly. So as we open up this psalm, we see David right away. He's singing this song. He's reflecting on his previous experience with the Lord. The experience of the Lord delivering him, remembering that he had delivered him then. David says, I waited patiently for the Lord and he turned to me and heard my cry for help. How many of us would turn to the Lord if we knew and we believed that he heard us and that he would turn to help us? See, the Lord had previously turned to him, previously heard his cry, saved him, delivered him and his troubles. He describes them. He describes his troubles. He says, I was in a desolate pit and muddy clay. A desolate pit can also be translated a watery pit. It's a pit hidden because the water around it makes everything look level. Have you ever driven on the streets in Juarez after a rainstorm? It all looks great because the water evens it out. But if you have a small enough car, you can get buried. I have, and here's the sad thing, going down the streets around my house now, I've run into that. Brand new streets. But it's the same thing. We've had so much rain that it's turned into a watery pit. And so potholes can fit that description. It's kind of like getting stuck in that pot. Like when you're walking along, walking along, and then all of a sudden you step down deep into a pit. But imagine it goes over your head. That's what it's talking about. The muddy clay. We know it here and we call it what? Caliche. It's like solid, like rock, right? I remember digging in my first backyard that I ever owned. It was so hard. It was, it was caliche clay. And I'm out there. Luana's helping me. We're, we're digging out this area that we're going to plant grass. Here's how El Paso works. Where you want to plant grass, it won't grow. The moment you say, I'm going to remove that grass, it goes, here I am. and just stays forever. I have a pick that I was using to dig it out. 
and I was using the flat side to, to, to hit this caliche and it twisted that metal. That's how thick this caliche is. But what happens? You get a little bit wet. You get a little bit wet. It's just like mush. That's what it's like. The solid clay becomes slippery and slimy. You see both of these traps that David's talking about, it comes from water. And what I see here is it's traps that come from a picture of a storm in our life. When the waters rage and the floods come, there's that desolate pit. There's that muddy clay. Both traps. There's an old saying that says smooth waters is smooth sailing. But it's not the smooth waters that test your skills on the sea, is it? It's the rough waters that test us. It's the rough waters that reveals who's in command of the ship. And two questions come rising up quickly. When the storms hit us and we're faced with those desolate pits and the muddy clay, will our faith stand? And can we stand on God's promises? So I want to ask you tonight to consider and to think, what is your watery pit? What is your slimy mud puddle? Because each one of us has faced it. Each one of us has different, they're not always the same for us, but they can fall into some, some of the same categories. Some of us, our desolate pit, our muddy clay is sin. Maybe we're still caught up in a sin. Maybe something, we fell into that old sin we didn't mean to, but somehow we're there again. And that one sin leads to more sin until soon we're rolling and sliding in the mud of sin like pigs. Maybe your water pit, maybe your mud puddle is defeat. As the storms of this life rage on top of you, you are caught in this feeling of personal defeat. You're like, I just can't anymore. I can't with school. I can't with training. I can't with work. I can't with home. I can't with this relationship. In all those areas of your life, you're like, I'm, I, I struggle to find success. I'm not sure I can have success in these areas. Maybe it's bad habits. There's destructive bad habits and those are your addictions. And there's others that are, they're less harmful, but they're still harmful. These, these are our bad habits. We have a bad habit of a quick temper. We have a bad habit of not being able to control what we say. Maybe we have a bad habit of self-pity, laziness. There's even the bad habit of falling into the trap of overeating, overindulging, any of those things. It's those bad habits that we just allow. They become a pit. They become a slimy mud puddle. The more we try to get ourselves out, the more we slip and fall and just get covered in mud. And then, and then there's the circumstances, right? Circumstances. We don't have any control of our circumstances. These are not sins. These are not defeats. These are not even bad habits. These are perhaps severe trials in which you can relate to Paul who is persecuted just for standing for Christ. 
when Paul describes his circumstances, he says, five times I received 40 lashes minus one from the Jews. Five times he was beaten 39 times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. I've spent a a night and a day in the open sea. That would scare the bejesus out of me. He says, on frequent journeys, I face dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers among false brothers, toil, hardship, sleepless nights, hunger, thirst, without food. I was cold, without clothing. And, and then anything, in case he forgot some, he says, not to mention other things. It's a daily pressure on him. Maybe you feel that daily pressure as you walk with Christ and the rest of the world recoils at the fact that you seek righteousness. Now, a new believer in these situations, you know what? A new believer has an advantage. They have the advantage of fresh faith. We all remember that day that we came to the Lord. Everything was possible because all of a sudden everything in our life changed in a moment, in an instant, the moment we placed our faith and trust in Jesus. But there's a, there's a mature Christian who also has advantage. The mature Christian has an advantage because they have an enduring faith. They've already been through these trials and the Lord has shown himself faithful. We need to get from the new believer to the mature believer because we need to keep that faith. What God has been for us in the past is the promise of what he will do, be to us in the future. The question is, is, do we recognize what he's been to us previously? That's what David did here. That's how he opened up. He recognized that it was God who brought him from the desolate pit. It was God who brought him up out of the muddy pit and onto the rock, the solid rock upon which he stands. Circumstances like the above, they can be a pit for anybody. And David recognized that God brought him up, set his feet on the solid rock, and he says, and he made my steps secure. And Paul echoed this deliverance from God in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8. He says, look, we, and he's speaking to the church, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. And we are struck down, but not destroyed. And what he's saying there is you will go through the mud and you'll go through the pits and you're going to go through the pits in life. But you know what? When you have Christ, you will not be utterly destroyed. You will not be utterly overtaken. Though God may not change our circumstances in certain situations. I mean, if your mud and your pit is sin and it's a bad habit and this and that, God can change that. But like Paul's example above in which his situation was because he loved God and he followed God, God may not change that situation for you, but he provides the solid ground for you to stand on so that you are not sinking in the mud so that you're not falling into the watery pit. And you know what? David's deliverance from the Lord, it gave him something. It gave him a new song, a hymn of praise. It says, God put a song in my mouth. 
And that's not like God just like putting it in his mouth. It's God did this. And David's response, the only natural response he had was to sing about it. When God rescues, when God delivers, when God acts on our behalf in any way, it should produce naturally within us praise. Not only praise, but it also produces witness and testimony as we testify to the things that God has done for us. David says, many are going to see, many are going to fear, and they're going to trust the Lord because of the things he's done. What are many going to see? They're going to see God's rescue. They're not going to see, oh, look, look at how strong David is. He just stood up on his own two feet. He picked himself up by the bootstraps and he moved on. Now they're going to say, look at that guy, David. He was stuck in the mud. And the only way he got out was because his God is the real God. He's really there. He really picked him up. Why, you might ask, did God allow us to get in the mud? Why does God allow us to get bogged down? Why does he allow us to go through those things that seem to be setbacks in our life and things that just seem to be like a major catastrophe in our life? One reason is testimony. God has given you personally a testimony that others need to hear about how he's active in your life for real. People turn to the Lord when they see not how, how well we have it put together. People turn to the Lord, not when we, they think that we're great, no, if we try to put, show that we have it put together how great we are, you know what they do? They turn their nose at us. They turn away from us. They reject and recoil at us. But when they look at us and we are broken and we are humble and, and, and they see where we're at and they realize it has to be God, then they begin to start to question, maybe God can help me too. If he, God can come through for them, maybe he can come through for me. How long to sing this song? One of my other favorite songs, it says, I'm going to sing until the whole world hears. Our worship leads others to God. And when they come to God, like David, they discover, they, they discover the truth. How happy is anyone who puts their trust in the Lord? I can guarantee you that there is nobody who's come before the Lord and put their full trust in God and has ever said, that was the biggest mistake of my life. Those who have come to put their trust in the Lord, they say there's nothing better. Really? Because your life is this. Yeah, but I don't care. I got a God who's got me. Doesn't matter what else happens. My brothers and sisters in Christ, don't be an Eeyore Christian. I was worried that there was going to be a lot of younger people and they wouldn't know who Winnie the Pooh was. But don't be an Eeyore Christian because the joy of the Lord is our strength. And it's a joy that gives us that it's a joy that he gives us and no one can take it from you. But the caution is, is you can give it up. If you allow the pits and the mire to take it from you. Second Samuel 6, 5, David and the whole house of Israel were dancing before the Lord with all kinds of fir, wood, instruments, lyres, harps, tambourines, cisterns, and cymbals. You know what I see there? I see a full band. 
So anybody who believes that worship does not include a full band, it's in the Bible, okay? We got guitars, we got harps, we got tambourines, we got drums. And so it's a full ensemble. That's how David praises the Lord. That's how much joy he has for the Lord. It continues on in verse 14 of that. It says, David was dancing with all his might before the Lord wearing a linen ephod. He and the whole house of Israel, they were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of a ram's horn. This is just after they had dropped the ark and someone went out to try to catch it in their own strength and God killed him. And David said, oh my gosh, who is this God? But at the sight of who God is, it caused him great joy and he praised him. How long to sing this song? Always. You know what, my brothers and sisters in Christ, those of you who recognize what God has done in your life, you know this to be true. We will never run out of song when we think and consider the things that God has done. Verse five, David says, Lord, my God, you have done many things, many things. You know what? If we're honest and we actually go back and we take the time to realize it, God has done many things for us just within the last hour. His wondrous works, his plans for us, You know that that breath that you take in your lungs every single time, God gives it to you every breath. But we forget that miracle. Why? Because we've taken so many of them. We start to just take it for granted. He says that there are more things that he does for us than can be told. You know, when we lack things to sing about God, And praise God about, it's because we overlook, we ignore, we discount the things that he's done for us. We spend a lot of times on our knees praying for things, praying for the Lord to do things. And when the Lord does things, we move on. And and it's okay to do that, but don't forget to praise him and continue to thank him and continue to remember the things that he's done. And the things that he continues to do for us every day, all day. Driving in El Paso. If you made it up and down the freeway, the Lord was at work. (laughs) The previous deliverance that we have experienced from the Lord should always be on our lips. How long to sing this song? Always, because that praise should be on our lips. It should be the first thing we do. Man, you don't know my God. Here's what my God has done for me. Here's what God has done. Have you heard what God has done? And we should just be doing that. How long should we sing this song? Eternity, my brothers and sisters. We're going to sing praises for eternity. In this life, there's things that are going to stop. But in eternity, worship and praise never stops. I proclaim righteousness, David says, in the great assembly. David says, I do not keep my mouth closed and I do not hide your righteousness and I did not conceal your constant love and truth from the great assembly. A faithful testimony is the song of previous delivery. You know, Jesus said something and we may not have ever thought about it in this term and in this frame, 
In Matthew 12, 34, Jesus tells the Pharisees, he's a brood of vipers. How can you speak good things when you're evil? For the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. If your heart is full of praise for the Lord, your mouth speaks it forth. If you can't hold back the praises, it's because God has filled your heart. The one who's been truly delivered by God and finds solid ground in him and in his word, our mouths can't contain it. We have to proclaim it. Whether it's through our song, through our testimony, we are proclaiming it. And the truth of it is, if you can hold in what God has done for you in your life, it's because you do not think much of what God has done for you. Now, if you'll jump with me down to verse 11, we see David's plea and praise for future deliverance. Because as we know from this life, life is the pits because we're, we're either in a mountain we're either going up to the mountaintop or we're going down from the mountaintop into a valley. And usually the climb out of the valley is a longer time. When we go into a valley, it's almost like we fell down the mountain. That's what it feels like to me anyway. In verse 11, David says, Lord, you do not withhold your compassion from me. Your constant love and truth will always guard me. For troubles without number have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me. I'm unable to see. They are more than the hairs of my head and my courage leaves me. Lord, be pleased to rescue me. Hurry to help me, Lord. Let those who intend to take my life be disgraced and confounded. Let those who wish me harm be turned back and humiliated. Let those who say to me, aha, aha, be appalled because of their shame. So David starts off this psalm and he's remembering previous delivery. He's going, man, Lord, you were so awesome. You've done this. You've lifted me up out of the watery pit. You pulled me out of the muck and the mire and the clay, and you put me on solid ground. You made my feet secure. And, and then he goes and he remembers, he's all, wait, the, that, the Lord doesn't withhold his compassion from me. He was there to rescue me. He was helping me. He says his love is constant and, and his truth always guards him. And it's important for David to remember important for us to remember. Why? Why do we need to remember? Why does he remember? How do we remember? David remembers because the song of the Lord's deliverance and rescue is always on his lips. We remember what the Lord has done for us when his song is always on our lips. When we remember what it's important to remember, because as I said, life's only constant is that it changes. You might be out of the mud and the muck and the mire today. But what about tomorrow? What about later tonight? What about in the next five minutes? None of us knows if we're going to get a phone call all of a sudden that's going to change that. David found himself in that spot once again. And because he remembered the Lord's faithfulness previously, he again comes to the Lord in faith for his troubles. And his troubles, this is how he describes them. He says, troubles without numbers surround me. And his iniquities are overtaking him. Literally, that means they're submerging him. They're pushing his head under to where he cannot see. You ever felt so overwhelmed that you're like, man, I just, I, I just, 
I can't right now. Like I can't even think, I can't even see. I, I, I don't need, I need a minute to process this. That's where he was at. The sheer number of the problems and the chaos around him is more than the hairs on his head. For some of us, it's less than others, but still there's a, like, I can't count the hairs on my head. (laughs) With the pile of troubles and iniquities, it's understandable when we read David say, my courage leaves me. We can all relate with that line. Oh, when it comes against us, all my courage leaves me. David simply calls out, he says, Lord, be pleased to rescue me and hurry to help me. David's describing it's the exhaustion of suffering and his only place of relief and the only place of hope is the Lord. You see, when we continue to remember what the Lord has done for us previously, when we turn to him, we will continue to remember to turn to him. Have you ever had that time where you're like, man, I'm going through this and I don't know how to get out of it. And all of a sudden someone says, well, have you asked the Lord? And then you go and you ask the Lord and I'm like, and he got me out of it. And then you're like, why didn't I remember to go to him? We need to remember what he's done for us previously. As we remember where he's brought us from previously, what he's taken us out of previously, how he's acted on our behalf previously, we are more driven to go to him in each time. And you know what? God is not like us. Because we as people, what happens? Oh, here comes that person again. Oh, they're always in trouble. Oh, they're always having problems. Oh, they're always coming to me with this. You know what the Lord says when he sees you? Here comes my child. He's never going, oh, it's them again. He says, come here, child. He's ready. He's waiting for us. Psalm 121, verses 1 and 2. This is in a numerous amount of songs. You know why? Because we need it. I lift my eyes unto the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth, the maker of heaven and earth. That's a song of ascent, by the way. Did you know that the Jews would sing that song as they went to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover? as they remember the sacrifice that saves them, how the Lord brought them out of Exodus. You know why they would sing this? And they say, I lift my eyes into the hills because you had to literally walk up to get to Jerusalem. And so as they, they, they would say, my eyes look unto the hills. From where does my help come from? And it points to Jerusalem. It points to the temple. It points to that sacrifice that they're going to go celebrate. Now the prayer of David is for the Lord and his present problem and the facing the enemies that he has. And, and his prayer is, Lord, just take the smugness off my enemies and wipe it off their faces. Lord, that they would be disgraced and confounded. Those who want to harm me, that they would be humiliated. Those who would declare, aha, as though they discovered something to discredit me, to disqualify me, falsely accuse me, that they would instead be appalled because of their own shame. We all have people like that, right? The moment we told him, I gave my life to Christ, or I'm living for Christ, or I want to live for God, I want to live a righteous life, they go, it's just a phase. And then they're waiting, they're watching, and they're inspecting your life. They're like, you see what you just, you see what you just did? You're not a Christian. Look at them. You just made a mistake. And it's because they don't understand. 
We're not going to be perfect. We're just saying we're going to trust the Lord. Verse 16, David continues on. He says, let all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let those who love your salvation continually say, the Lord is great. Or as we sing, great are you, Lord. He says, I'm oppressed and needy. May the Lord think of me. You're my helper, my deliverer, my God. Do not delay. All of these verses that we're covering are in a song. We used to sing it all the time. It's called Always. And, and the chorus of it, it goes, my God, he will not delay. He, he's always there. He always come through. Always. David's motivation in praise and prayer is that the Lord would be glorified though. Those who seek the Lord and find gladness in him and those who love his salvation, they'll be praising him and declaring his greatness. They will be continually singing, great are you, Lord, all the earth. David never, never forgets his humble position before the Lord, though. You see, David never comes to him and says, Lord, you owe me this. Remember, I'm David. I'm the guy after your own heart. You got to save me. Never does he come before the Lord in that, in that expectation. He's always like, Lord, May you be pleased to rescue me. He comes in a humble position before the Lord, his humble dependence upon the Lord. He declares, he says, I'm oppressed. And that might sound weird to us. How is that humble? He's, he's declaring that he, he's, but what he's really saying, he's, he's saying, I'm poor and wretched and needy. Can you humble yourself? And admit that you're poor, wretched, and needy, and that the Lord is your helper and deliverer? Because if you cannot admit your wretched and needy state, then God is not your deliverer. God does not help those who help themselves, God helps those who admit they're helpless, hapless, and hopeless without Him. Now, if you're paying attention here, you notice that I skipped a whole chunk of verses. So if you'll turn to verse six, we're going to talk about present reflection. In the middle of the psalm, in between the two parts, in between the, the praise for previous deliverance and the petition for fresh deliverance, David stops with a present reflection. And his reflection is in verse six, seven, and eight. He says, you do not delight in sacrifice and offering. He says, you open my ears to listen. You do not ask for a whole burnt offering or a sin offering. Then I said, see, I have come in the scroll. It is written about me. I delight to do your will, my God, and your instruction is deep within me. You could take that whole part out and the psalm would still make sense. This part in there, what the heck's going on here, right? David, in the middle of the psalm, he just starts reflecting. He's reflecting not of past or future. He's reflecting on relationship. How is he relating to the Lord? Is he relating to the Lord on works-based? Or is he relating to the Lord relationship? 
his present relationship with God. Did you know that in order to trust God, you have to have a relationship with God? Without relationship, you can't have trust. And that's because relationship can't be established on mere ceremony. Everybody who thinks, oh, I have relationship because I married my spouse and we had that ceremony, that don't matter. Relationship is not established on mere ceremony. It requires a willfully surrendered heart. You establish the marriage when you vow to lay down your life for each other, to hold the other one up higher than yourself. When you come before the Lord, you, you don't come before the Lord in mere ceremony. Here's my offering, Lord, and now I'm fine. It's because you surrender yourself before the Lord. And you say, take all I am, it's yours. David acknowledges that God's delight, God's delight is not found in sacrifice. Did you know that? God is not delighted just in our mere sacrifice. He's not waiting for us to bring him our greatest, largest, giantest ruby or gold or whatever else we consider precious. He doesn't want offering only. He wants the heart. He wants us. When he has us willfully submitted to him, then our sacrifices become an offering to him. But if we sacrifice without the heart, he doesn't care about that. He also stipulates, David, he says that you open my ears to listen. And this phrase has confounded meaning in it. And commentators have been fighting over it for forever. Obedience over sacrifice is summed up in the, in the expression, opening my ears. The Septuagint paraphrases this verse and the word opened uh, becomes the word pierced or the word dug. Older commentators take the meaning back to Exodus chapter 21, in which it's talking about when they slave at the sixth year is being set free. If they so desire, they can choose to remain a slave, a willful slave. And then the owner takes that slave and they take their ear and they pierce it with an awl. And it marks that forever they are a bond slave. Context fits, but I see the word here is ears. You've opened my ears. So it's plural. They didn't usually pierce both ears. It wasn't cool. It only became cool recently in like the 2000s. Today, almost all the commentators consider the word to be opened up. This also fits the context, not only that the message is written now on the scroll, but also on the heart of the psalmist, indicating that God has allowed the understanding, that God has given the understanding, God has given his message on the heart. It seems to be referring to the new covenant and the focus on the heart, but I think we can apply both meanings to it. God has not only written on our heart, but he also wants us to have a willing surrender as a bond slave saying, I am no longer my own. I am yours. And you know what the cool thing is about a bond slave? When that bond slave willingly gives themselves over to their master, their master is now charged with their welfare and their care as if they were their own child. Jeremiah prophesied of the new coming covenant in Jeremiah 31, 33. He said, this is the new covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, 
It says, I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. They will have their ears opened. In other words, having the law in our hearts, the proper definition of what it means to be in right relationship with God. Jesus too had much to say about the heart in Matthew 13, 15. It says, for this, people's heart has grown callous and their ears are hard of hearing. And they've shut their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn back and I would heal them. You see, it requires a soft heart, an uncalloused heart in order to have ears that hear. How many people, even Christians today, have plugged ears that need to be opened up? They're wrestling and slipping and sliding around and fighting in the muck and the mire. And they're fighting to do it in their own strength and they don't have to. If they would just remember that they have a deliverer, that they have one who would rescue them out of it and set them up on solid ground. And I'm reminded again of that saying, put me on solid ground and I'll move the world. When they can't hear anything, when they can't hear anyone, not even God, they do not know the blessing of God that this psalm speaks of. They don't know the deliverance from the pits of sin, the pits of defeat, the pits of bad habits, or the pits of circumstances. Truth is, when we think about it, we realize and we remember our deliverance from the pit and the mire and the clay, you know where it comes from? It comes when we wait upon the Lord. That's what David said. He said, I was waiting upon the Lord. That's how he started the psalm. He says, I waited patiently for the Lord. That's where his rescue and his help came from. When he waited patiently for the Lord. May we remember to wait patiently upon the Lord as those who are his, that we wait for him, knowing that he holds us, that he's promised, that he's faithful, that he's delivered us before, he'll deliver us again. And you know what? We also see that there's fruit of God's deliverance. You know what the fruit of God's deliverance is? When he says that he wants us to go forth and bear fruit, this is the fruit that he wants us to have. The fruit is songs of praise. His praise is forever on our lips now because he's rescued us, because he's delivered us, because he's made that in our life. How long shall we sing those songs? Forever. The fruit of hopeful expectation. We should be able to, oh my gosh, he saved me from this. He can save me from anything. Anything I come up against, I should go to the Lord. Never again do I have to rely on myself. Never again do I have to look to myself for the answer, for the solution, for the rescue. (coughs) David says, happy. This is not passing happiness. It's abiding happiness for the one who trusts the Lord. That is a residing happiness, never going away. When you trust in the Lord, there's just that happiness. And, and, and really the word is shalom. There's that peace, that rest in the Lord. There's also the fruit of settled conviction. You know what happens when I learn what helps, what saves, what gets me out of the, you know what happens when I learn that? When I learn that it's God who rescues, nothing else will do. I can't go to any other vain philosophy. 
I can't go to any other supposed guru or self-help or any of those things. It doesn't satisfy to find someone who just spews lies, who tells us what we want to hear, when God who tells us the truth is the one that rescues us for real. Nothing, when you have the real thing, nothing else will do. And then the other fruit is witness and testimony for others. My brothers and sisters in Christ, God rescued you. He rescued you specially. He rescued you um, completely. He, he's, he's brought you out of that. And he didn't do it just so that you can hold on to it and keep it in yourself and just be like, oh, wow, look at what the Lord's done for me. And I'm just going to see. He's given you that so that you could tell the whole world. Because the world is looking and wondering, is there a God? And if there's a God, can he get me out of where I am? You know the verses 6 through 8? It's David's attack on the sacrificial system. The full intent of David's attack upon the sacrifices is this. Sacrifice is not adequate. It cannot save you. They cannot procure eternal salvation. The New Testament tells us this much. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. What takes away sin is he who comes to do the will of God. Jesus in offering himself for sin once for all, he simultaneously fulfills and abolishes the Old Testament sacrificial system. And verse seven is written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and it speaks of Christ and it pours ultimate meaning into the verses six, seven, and eight. God does desire sacrifice, but it must be a sacrifice from the heart. But all sacrifices are limited. And so God has fulfilled his own desire, his own demand, because he provided himself, his own son, as the perfect sacrifice for sin. You see, it's promised in the Old Testament, the scroll of the book fulfilled in Christ, who delighted to do the Father's will, and who had his law perfectly written on his heart. And so our worship is fulfilled in Christ, who writes God's law upon our hearts by the Holy Spirit. When you look at Hebrews chapter 10, Paul used the New Testament to expound upon the Old Testament all the time. Hebrews chapter 10 is, well, I believe Paul was the writer of Hebrews. It's not actually known who wrote Hebrews, but I believe it was Paul, mainly because things like this, where he took the Psalms and expounded upon it and showed us where Christ was in it. Hebrews chapter 10, verse five, it says, therefore, as he was coming into the world, he said, you did not desire sacrifice and offering, but you prepared a body for me. You did not delight in whole burnt offerings and sin offerings. And then I said, see, it is written about me in the scroll. I have come, I have come to do your will. God. And after he says above, you did not desire delight in sacrifice and offerings, whole burnt offerings and sin offerings, which are offered according to the law. 
He then says, see, I have come to do your will. And he takes away the first to establish the second. He takes away the first covenant to establish the second covenant. And here's the beautiful promise that we have. And it comes out of Psalms 40. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. That was the greatest rescue that God ever did for us. When he sent his son to die on the cross to be the greatest sacrifice, the sacrifice that takes away the whole sins of the world, the greatest sacrifice that overtook anything in the sacrificial system. And it made the sacrificial system worthless because there can be no greater sacrifice than Christ who laid down his own life to be able to forgive us of our sins and sanctify us in his name. As the worship team comes up to, we're going to close out with one last song. It's give us clean hands. In this song, by Christ's sacrifice, we can ask the Lord to give us clean hands because he has provided the offering necessary to give us the sanctification, the ability to remove the dirtiness of sin, remove the mud, the muck, the mire to pull us up out of the pit, place us on solid ground and clothe us in his righteousness, his fresh, clean clothes. And it's for those who willingly surrender their life because remember God wants our hearts. Surrender your life, surrender your heart at the foot of the cross. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for David and, and, and this psalm, Lord, and how it points forward and it, it reminds us of what you've done for us, Father God. And I pray that for myself, that your praise would forever be on my lips, Father God, that I would remember your deliverance, that I would remember your rescue. Lord, help me to not be, help us to not be ashamed to share it, but that we would be a witness and a testimony that the world would see that you are our deliverer, our rescue, our salvation in Christ Jesus. Amen.